our church, we, are, uh, we have a lot of gifted and talented people. We have our own, like, gate class right here in our, uh, <laughs> in our church. A lot of gifted and talented folks. And, um, in fact, we have some really gifted and talented preachers. And uh, it's my joy over these next few weeks to uh, have some of those gifted and talented preachers within our congregation lead us in, in, in coming to the Word. And uh, we're going to have, in, in a few weeks, Danny Elaidi, who we've enjoyed his preaching before, is going to preach and, and lead us to the Word. Uh, next week, Rolf Geiling is going to be preaching for us as we continue in our series. And, uh, and today, Becky Fredrickson is going to come and, and lead us. And um, it's a particular joy to have Becky come today. Um, we, not just because she's my sister, but uh, two, because we in the Church of the Nazarene, we, we, we celebrate women preachers. And um, we believe that, that uh, regardless of, of gender, that uh, God can be at work through His people. And uh, so we celebrate the fact today that, that God is has, in a sense, uh, been at work in Becky's life and has led her and given her many opportunities to, to teach and to lead different studies and to preach here uh, before us in our congregation and to welcome her again to come and, and lead us today. So, Becky, come on, and as you do, I'm going to allow the kids to be dismissed for Children's Church. Good morning. Well... If you look at our screen, James has had us uh, doing this series on saved, called saved. And we have another large word in front of us today. There's a lot of large words up there. Uh, But uh, the word we're going to talk about today is reconciliation. I actually think it might be the longest word up there. But James has already touched on three words, and the first one was justification. And we are forgiven. He talked about we are forgiven. The next word he talked about was regeneration, that we are made new. And then last week he touched on adoption, that we are part of God's family. So what is Christian reconciliation? And why do you and I need to be reconciled with God? We're going to look at several passages this morning, but I want uh, to focus most of our attention on 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 6-2. So let's imagine that you and a close friend have an argument. Now, I can't imagine anyone in this room having an argument with their friend, but suddenly a good relationship that you once enjoyed with this person is strained to the point of breaking. And suddenly you cease speaking to one another and, consi- and communication is considered to be awkward. Gradually, you might even become strangers. And such an estrangement can only be reversed by reconciliation. The English word to reconcile means to restore friendship between two people who are hostile to one another. It means to make up, to settle an argument, to bring back into harmony. 
The word reconcile means that the making up must be accomplished by both parties who were at odds with one another. The Bible says that Christ reconciled us to God. Romans 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.18, where we're going to look in a bit. Colossians 1.20-21. The fact that we needed reconciliation means that our relationship with God was broken. And since God is holy, we were the ones to blame. Our sin alienated us from him. Romans 5.10, I think it's going to be up there, says that we were enemies of God. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. When Christ died on the cross, he satisfied God's judgment and made it possible for God's enemies, which is us, to find peace with him. And our reconciliation to God then involves the exercise of his grace and the forgiveness of our sin. The result of Jesus' sacrifice is that our relationship has changed from enmity or hostility to friendship. Or as James spoke about last week, we've been adopted. I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. John 15, 15. Now, I'd love for you guys to stand, and I'd like to read our passage this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 6, 2. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that as that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Thanks be to God. Oh. I always say that. I always say that. So, 
This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> I'm a little, you know, lamux there. You can tell where, what end I'm usually at. So, thanks be to God for his word, right? If you have your Bibles, keep them open, because we're going to keep looking at that passage. The Apostle Paul paints a picture for us in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Line upon line and stroke upon stroke, he draws a picture of a Christian living in the midst of a dying world. In the verses leading up to our passage, passage today, we learn what a Christian ought to be like in a world like ours today, which is comparable to this first century world where Paul was living. Filled with despair, hopelessness, corruption, deceit, and darkness. The Apostle Paul was continually motivated to guard what he was doing, to see that he was doing right, and to be filled with the right attitudes and the right actions. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. So we try to persuade others, he says. Then where we picked up this morning, he speaks of a second motive. Paul says, Christ's love compels us. It constrains us. It drives us out. The awareness that Christ loves him, Paul, has forgiven him and dwells in him and cherishes him, always supports and sustains him in, en in everything he does and goes through. He is never alone. It is such a tremendous power to motivate the Apostle Paul as it should motivate us as well. The third motive that Paul speaks of is the change of viewpoint that comes to a Christian. He says in verse 16, and I, essentially I'm going to uh, paraphrase a little bit, we do not look at people anymore from a human point of view. We don't judge them by outward standards. We don't value them because they're wealthy or influential or famous. We see everyone as made in the image of God but having lost the likeness of God. Yet, they are able to be restored into that relationship. Any life, no matter how desolate, wasted, empty, or lonely, can, by the touch of this divine life, be restored to usefulness, joy, peace, and power, can be part of a new creation that God is working out. We are to live like that. We are to have that in our thoughts every day. We are to be renewed in our minds by the Spirit of God so that we always look at a life that way because that is really how it is. Having said all that, the apostle goes on to describe the ministry that God has given us. And these words, I think, are among some of the most remarkable in the scripture. They are a description of the greatest, the most effective work going on in the world today. And it's a description of your ministry and mine, and what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. If you still have your Bibles open, look at these verses from uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What a wonderful ministry that is. We need to understand this ministry of reconciliation very carefully because this is our ministry. This is what God has called each one of us who knows Jesus Christ to do. That is why he has left us here in the world. This is not simply Paul's ministry or Pastor James's ministry or Pastor Aaron's ministry. It is our ministry. And I want us to notice how Paul uses the words we and us all through this passage. He shared it with those Christians of that early day in Corinth, and he shares it with us today, and this is what God has given to us. There are five things in this passage I would like to call our attention to. Notice first that this ministry comes to us from God himself. It originates with him. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, verse 18. Now, if this ministry comes from God, that means that you and I are responsible to him to do this and not to anybody else. When Paul went around the Roman world, he did not have to check in with the 12 apostles in Jerusalem to get permission to go to another country. They did not give him his commission. God did. He did not send them monthly reports on how he was doing. He had no board or authority over him, and neither do we in this regard. Take, for example, my husband Mark. He did not have to seek permission from the church to get involved with black sheep and begin ministering to bikers. Now, he may have asked me about it, uh, but believe me, I am not getting between Mark and God. God had placed a desire on Mark's heart to come beside and reach bikers for Christ. I really doubt that you would need to get permission from Pastor James or even the board at our church here to have a ministry in your home, to reach out to your neighborhood. That is your responsibility unto God. He gave you the home. He put you in that neighborhood. He asked you to reach out to those around you. And he has given you the ministry of reconciliation. So you do it as unto him. Now, I don't want to discount that the knowledge of any ministry going on in a home ought to be shared with the staff of a church or even your church body. Uh, your pastor, your church body, they ought to be allowed to help, to give counsel, to support and encourage. But no one is responsible for that ministry except God himself. This is the whole point of this. It begins with God. He sent us and he commissions us as he commissioned Paul. Paul makes clear that God reconciles us first so that we do not go with something that we do not know anything about. We go with what we ourselves experienced, and that helps a lot, doesn't it? 
You are the world's greatest authority on what has happened to you. Nobody can tell you differently. When you go with the word about how God has reconciled you and healed the division, how he crossed the gap between you and him, and you find yourself now enfolded in his heavenly arms, supported by his grace, forgiven by his love, you can share that with someone else. That is the message of reconciliation. The second thing to notice is in verse 19, and this is a powerful ministry which reconciles the world. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is the message above all else the world needs to know. The problem for a lot of people is they have no security, no sense of acceptance, no sense of worth. A lot of us have a poor self-image. Even those loudmouth people uh, that we know that try to make out that they are self-sufficient have a poor self-image. Deep inside, they know that's a cover-up. And they're scared and, and frustrated oftentimes. They have to pretend that they are able to handle everything. Maybe that's you. But at the end of the day, we know we can't. The reason people feel that way is because they feel an alienation, an estrangement. Maybe you feel that way from God. And they live in a universe they obviously know does not belong to them. They did not make it. They do not run it. This whole world was running long before you and I showed up on it. People know that instinctively, so they feel uneasy. Probably, if you were to ask a psychologist or a counselor, we would find out that estrangement and alienation are one of the greatest problems of our day. So that is what Paul's message is addressing. We are lost. We are alienated. We are cut off from the God who runs everything. This is a message, therefore, that strikes home to human hearts everywhere. It does not make any difference what color your skin is, what your background is, or how you grew up. I mean, you can take this to the savage in the jungle. You can say it to a businessman in San Francisco. You can say it to a craftsman, a plumber, a lawyer. They all need, we all need, this universal word sent to the world. And notice there are two ways by which it comes. First, the characteristic of this message, if it is really the right message from God, will be that it does not come judge, talking about the judgment of God over sin. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, believe it or not. When I was in high school, James and I attended a church where the pastor was sort of a fire and brimstone kind of speaker. I think perhaps that he felt his job as a preacher was to make men aware of their sin and to tell them of the judgment of God upon evil. And he was of the generation that taught that you, were, that you had to kind of scare people uh, before they would become Christians, to make them believe that they were going to hell so that when they were seeing the flames burning beneath them, when they were feeling that singeing of their hair, 
then they would repent of their evil. When I began to mature in my own Christian walk, and I began to learn from verses like these in 2 Corinthians, and as I studied the New Testament, I saw how the apostles and how the Lord himself approached people, and that was not the message. Now, that is ultimately what you may have to say to some people who refuse the message of grace. But that is not where we want to start. This is really a message where God is saying, we do not need to talk about judgment. I've taken care of that. As Paul puts it here, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. I learned after a few years that all I need to do is go to people in love, taking for granted that they are hurting inside from their sins, just as I was hurting from my sins. And talk about a God who understood that, who wanted to relieve them from that hurt and had done something about it. God was not ready to throw me into hell. He was opening his arms and inviting me to come to a loving Father and be restored. And that is the message. This is the word that we go with. Maybe you feel similar to how I felt back then as to what the message of the gospel was. I know we're past the Christmas season by a couple months here, uh, but I think we all know the song Santa Claus is Coming to Town. It, it's played over and over really starting in October. Um, but he knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you are good or bad. So be good for goodness sake. Now, I would sing that, but you don't want me to sing. You know what, though? That is not the way God looks at us. The, this message is that he sees our hurt, our loneliness, our emptiness, our struggles and hungers to be something different than we are. And he sees our sense of frustration that we cannot seem to get it all together. He comes with a word of release that says, I know that. I know you can't make it. And I've done something about it. I've taken care of the whole problem of sin. Now let's just talk about relationship and then call to people to come. Now let me put the brakes on just a little bit here. Do not read this as though it means God is not concerned about human evil. Some people do read it that way. They think this means that God is so loving that he does not care whether they sin or not. That he will just forget it all and you can just come. But no, that is never the word of the gospel. God takes sin very seriously. Anybody who assumes that the good news is that God does not care about sin has misread the scriptures. God cares very, very much about sin, and he sees it as a very hurtful thing. The only thing is, is that what this passage says, and goes on to say very clearly in verse 21, is that God has done something at tremendous cost to remove that problem of sin, and he cared so much about it, he was willing to pay that cost. The second way by which this works is that God sends people to be reconcilers. He sends you and me to be peacemakers. He has entrusted us to us 
this message of reconciliation. And that is why God put you in the neighborhood where you live. In order that you might be a beacon of light, reaching out with the message of reconciliation. Think of the song, This Little Light of Mine, that we sang when we were little. Don't hide your light under a bushel. No, that was like my favorite verse because I could yell, no. <laughs> Luke 8.16 says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Now, I think it helps to know you do not have to go to your neighbors and friends and tell them that they are doing everything wrong. Some might be living really yucky lives, which offend us. We cannot help but feel that way. But believe me, some of the things that we are doing might offend them too. We have to face that reality, and we have to go to them and talk about the fact that we are no different. Our inner lives and our thought lives are, are often as gross as anything they are doing. But we are dealing with a God who has done something about that, who understands that problem and who, would, who will deal with us in love and grace and forgiveness. Now, that's an, a totally different message entirely. Um, it is with that healing word that God sends us out to those around us. That is what we are here for, that we may be messengers of reconciliation. So Paul goes on to point out in verse 20 the third thing about this. This ministry requires a voluntary acceptance. It is not true that everybody is automatically saved. Some people think today that God in Christ paid the debt of sin and therefore everybody is saved. They don't know it, but they will find out when they die because they will wake up in glory saying, we don't deserve to be here. And God will say, well, surprise! Christ paid for your sins, and that is why you're here. Everybody makes it. No, that is not true. <laughs> Let's look at what verse 20 says. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you. And I read in a commentary that actually the word you should not be there. Paul is not addressing these Corinthians because they were already reconciled. He is telling them what he is preaching to others. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There would be no reason for that kind of a pleading appeal on God's part if it were true that everybody is automatically saved by the death of Christ. There is no universal salvation, no Willy Wonka golden ticket out there. It is as you receive this word and accept it for yourself, as you come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, so that the benefit of his death is applied to you, that you are saved. And it is when your neighbors and friends receive that. And that is why God sends us as ambassadors. Ambassadors and embassies are very much in the news these days, right? Um, just last year, we had our own ambassador, Chris Stevens, and four other Americans die in an attack on the U.S. consulate in the Libyan city of Benghazi. The film Argo 
that just won an, an Oscar for Best Picture tells the story of those at the embassy in Tehran when it was besieged. And it's the story of the six that escaped. Now, I don't want to ruin that movie for anyone that hasn't seen it. But it's pretty scary stuff. So we might ask ourselves, why do we send ambassadors? Well, because countries do not always relate very well to each other. Our world is a broken one. Things need to be explained, need to be approached with diplomacy and caution and carefulness. And that is what an ambassador does. He or she is to be a representative of a government, handling themselves with such care and confidence that the message that their government seeks to convey is given in the most painless and least offensive way possible. Now, to me, that is dangerous. I mean, you can get yourself killed or taken captive as an ambassador in this world today. But the great thing is Paul saw himself as that kind of person, as an ambassador for Christ, pleading in the name of Christ, as though Christ himself was there pleading with men to become reconciled to God, to accept and relate to this forgiveness that God was offering. We implore you, implore you he says, we plead with men. We don't command them to be saved. We don't condemn them. We plead with them to turn and respond to the God of love. There is no beautiful, more beautiful picture in the Bible than this one Paul draws of God in his almighty power, the God who can do all things, who can carry out his will at any time he chooses to. Nevertheless, coming and pleading with guilty men and women to turn and be forgiven. Nothing is more descriptive of this than those words of Jesus as he wept over the city of Jerusalem. He says in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. I find that often the case with myself, and maybe you feel this way too, is that we face a possibility of rejection and we are afraid of it. Yet if we understand the message that we are taking, it would make it much easier. We have a great illustration of this message of reconciliation in the parable of the lost son found in Luke 15, 11 through 32. The main character in this parable is the forgiving father who remains constant throughout the story, waiting for his lost son. This father is the picture of God. The main theme of this parable focuses us on restoration or reconciliation of one into fellowship with the father. It's a story of a father who is watching and waiting eagerly for his son's return. A son that has turned his back on his father. That is what Isaiah says, isn't it? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Isaiah 53, 6. Yet here is God who has compassion on his children, and so instead of condemnation, there is rejoicing for a son who once was lost, but now is found. And this is the picture of the father receiving the son 
into relationship, into fellowship. And our response is to share it with those around us. So the message to all men everywhere, you turn around now and be reconciled to God. And when that happens, peace is restored. The fourth thing is in this, is this ministry results in achieving the righteousness of God, the very thing that men want to be. Men want to be right with God. Have you ever noticed how sensitive we are about whether people think we are right or not? Let somebody accuse you, and what do you start saying? You start justifying yourself, don't you? And justifying is the word for righteousness in the Bible. You start saying, well, I did it because of this, or well, this is what I had in mind. I think I was right in doing that. We long to be right. Ask anybody in my family, ask my own family, ask the Kinsler family. I like to be right. And Kyla's not here, but when Kyla joined the Kinsler family, I think that was the big wake-up thing for her was we all like to be right. We sat around the table at dinner, and we had to be right. <laughs> but a lot of us feel this way. Well, this is the great message we have. There is a way to be right with God, and it is set forth for us here in verse 21. God made him Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is such a great verse in the Bible. It is describing, of course, that mysterious transaction that took place upon the cross when Jesus, the sinless one, the one whose whole life was lived righteously, without failure, without fault, without evil, who never did anything wrong, was made to suffer for all the sins of you and me and the whole world. I certainly don't understand it. He took our place. He took my place, it says. And God agreed to it. It was something they planned between them. God sent his son into the world to do that very thing and made him on the cross to be sin for us. What that meant to him, none of us can really imagine or understand. We will never know how much agony of heart and mind and spirit pressed upon Jesus how the darkness of hell came upon his soul there on the cross. And we learn that God does not take sin lightly, that something has to be done to settle the problem of our evil. The great news, again, is that it has been done. That's the point. And God has settled the problem of all our sins, every one of them, by placing them upon his son. He has paid the full penalty that justice demands, so that when we come to God, he is not compromised by being good to us. His justice has been, has been satisfied. His love for that reason is free and released to be clear to us. And he accepts us in love and gives us, according to this verse, the righteousness of Christ himself. I do not totally understand that, or can I wrap my brain around that? But I believe it, and what a marvelous sense of acceptance and forgiveness and being loved 
that gives me. Now, we want to make sure we read that correctly. It says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I know a lot of people who read that as though it means, well, that gives me a chance to start to behave. If I work hard all my Christian life to be a good person, then I finally become the righteousness of God. No, he doesn't say that at all. It is something that you are going, it is not something that you are going to become according to the way you behave. It is something you are right now. You start your Christian life on that basis. The old has become new. You already have instantly, when you believe in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ. You are righteous. You are forgiven. You are restored. And that is the way God deals with us. Because we have that righteousness already. We do not have to earn it. It then should be our joy to begin to behave like it and to start being righteous because we are righteous. That's the great news. It is not good news if you go to somebody and say, Christ forgave all your sins up to now, but now you'd better watch it. You're going to have to pay for all those. No, that is not the gospel. The good news is that they are all forgiven all your life long. God knows your struggle. He has dealt with that. And he is never going to take it back, and he's never going to act any different way towards you because that problem is settled, and he can come right in alongside you and me and help us to learn how to act righteously on that basis. That's how he works, lifting you up, forgiving you, restoring you, strengthening you, and staying right with you until life finally ends. So this is the glory of it. We learn here how a God of justice can come to a loveless, hard, self-righteous, selfish, hurting, and hurtful sinner like you and me and not count his trespasses against him. That is the way he does it because he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The final word in this section I kind of want us to ignore this misleading chapter division here, is addressed to the believers in Corinth. This ministry makes us responsible to God's great offer. Look at chapter 6, 1 and 2. As God's co-workers, we, and this is a message now from God through Paul, urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation... I helped you. I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Do not accept the grace of God in vain, Paul says. What does that mean? It is, is it possible to accept the grace of God in vain? The grace of God is a general term that covers all that God has done for us in Christ. It means being reconciled to God. So Paul is saying this to people who, have already, who are already reconciled. Now don't let that be in vain, empty, worthless in your life. And what I think he is saying here is when you received Christ, he came in to live within you to do two basic things. One, to show you the difference between right and wrong. There are a lot of things that you think are right 
that are really wrong. And some of the things you think are wrong might actually be right. Christ has come to show us the difference. Secondly, to give us the power to do the right and reject the wrong. This is a situation that comes up a lot at our house. Mark and I have five kids. We have three young boys at home that we are constantly trying to help know the difference between right and wrong. And we're constantly, I feel like, guiding them to choose the right from the wrong. And that is what God does through his Holy Spirit. He guides us in his ways. That is what Christ has come for. And he intends to have us use that in every area of our life. If there are some areas where you and I don't listen to him, where we don't pay attention to him, do not apply or draw from him the strength that we need to act, then in that area we have Christ, but it is as though we did not. We don't profit anything. In that area of our life, we have received the grace of God in vain. Now that's convicting to me. And what's great is God will help us. He is at work to change that. But until we agree with God in that area, Christ will be of no value to you at all, as Paul said to the Galatians. So when do we do this? And again, this was convicting to me. Look at verse 2. There is only one word on God's clock. It is now. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. By quoting and applying Isaiah 49.8, Paul wants to give the Corinthian Christians a sense of urgency. This message is for us as well. We have to ask ourselves, when are we going to start acting in love toward the people we live and work with? We sort of put this off, don't we? We might say, well, I made a New Year's resolution that I was going to share it. Um, or I was planning to do it after my birthday. But God says, now is the time. The devil's time is always tomorrow. That is why we never get around to it. God's time is always today, now. So we have to reach out to our neighbors and our coworkers and become friends with them so that we might have an opportunity, hopefully, to share with them the change in our own life and heart. The love Christ has shown us. Now is the only time we have. We do not have yesterday because it's gone. You and I may not even get tomorrow. What we have is now, and for that reason, the word of God always addresses us in this way. If you and I are going to act and we see something that needs to be done, We need to do it now. Do not wait. Begin to live now. Enter into life now. That's God's time. Nothing else will be of benefit. So as Paul contemplates this great message of an insistent God reaching out to a dying, despairing world with a cure for all its troubles, pleading with man, pleading with us, to be reconciled to him. And then he sees us as involved in the process with him. 
And his appeal to us is don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray. Lord, I hope and pray that we can all see ourselves right in the middle of this passage and that we have gone to you. And God, that we have been reconciled to you. And as a result, we have committed to being your voice, your ambassador, and your spokesperson for this great work of reconciliation. Jesus has done all of that for us. He's made it possible that we might be brought back into relationship with the Father. And as Becky uh, shared with us so powerfully and beautifully, He's now given us that very ministry. And so we go into the world as people who have been reconciled to God through Christ so that we might point others in that same direction. Praise God. Thank you for this Savior who does this for us. And to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and power and authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen and amen. God bless you. Go in His peace.